Good morning, everyone. It's a, a privilege and an honor to speak from the Word of God this morning. I will be looking at Esther chapter 6, 1 through 13. Uh, the title of my sermon is, For Those Who Love God, All Things Work Together for Good. Uh, let's uh, look to the Lord for help and strength. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to sit under your word this morning. We pray that our minds would be clear to understand, our ears open to listen, our eyes open to see the truth, and our hearts prepared to be convicted and changed by your word. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would speak through me this morning, that it would not be my words, but your words for your people and for those who have yet to come to know Jesus as Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As the curtain opens on uh, Esther chapter 6, we see a dark cloud that's looming over all the Jews in the Persian Empire. Uh, an edict, according to all that Haman the Agagite commanded, was sent in the name of King Ashuerus to every province of the Persian kingdom. That in one day, on the 13th day of the 12th month, uh, the people of the kingdom were instructed to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews. Now, the Jews in Susa, which is the capital city, had just finished a three-day fast on behalf of Esther the queen. And their hope was in Esther to speak to the king and to beg for the mercy of the Jews. Uh, the Jewish people have one year until they face ultimate annihilation. But for one particular Jew, Mordecai, his life is in immediate danger. As we close chapter 5 last week, we see that evil Haman has had enough of Mordecai the Jew. And he had this 75-foot wooden beam or stake built so that he can have revenge and, and hang Mordecai on it. Mordecai's situation right now, it, it's dire. It's turned from bad to worse. You can imagine some of the questions that Esther and Mordecai and the Jews in Persia are asking themselves. What, why is this happening to us? What is God doing? Where is God in our suffering? Why is God silent? Has God forgotten us? See, these are some of the same questions we ask ourselves today. Our country is asking today. People are asking even this weekend. Now, we've said that through the book of Esther, what we're trying to do is we're trying to learn about God in a book that God is never mentioned, where God never speaks and where God never makes an appearance. Yet, as we've already seen in the first five chapters of the book of Esther, the invisible fingerprints of God is all throughout this book. God is the hidden hero of the book of Esther. And we can so clearly see that in Esther chapter 6. Esther chapter 6, this is the turning point of this whole story. Right? If Esther was a TV or Netflix drama, okay, episode 6 will get you hooked for the rest of the series. So let's, let's get into the chapter. Esther chapter 6, 1 to 13, it's shaped by three statements by King Ashuerus. Two questions and a command. So for our benefit this morning, we're going to look at three points to consider this morning. In verses 1 to 3, the king asks his first question. What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? Our first point to consider is this. God is always at work on behalf of his children. Trust in his providence. God is always at work on behalf of his children. Trust in his providence. Now, this is not only our first point, but really this is the big idea of this chapter. This is the main point. 
And we open in chapter 6, and Mordecai, he's oblivious to Haman's plan and his impending demise. Esther does not even know of Haman's plan, so there's no way to help Mordecai. This situation is out of the control of both Mordecai and Esther. God is always at work on behalf of his children, trust in his providence. Just as Haman was up all night building this stake to hang Mordecai on, so too, it seems, was the king. The chapter starts with, on that night, the king could not sleep. Now, I think we all can believe that a king with an empire as vast and large as King Ashuerus, that he would have many sleepless nights. There's a a lot of things to stress about. And of all the things that he can do that night, King Ashuerus has a boring book read to him, the Book of Memorable Deeds or or Chronicles. And he realizes a few years prior, an assassination attempt was put together by two men who were a part of his inner circle. One of them has uh, one of the best names of the Bible, Big Thana. And a man named Mordecai overheard this conversation. And uh, Mordecai brought this information to the palace. And that information saved the king's life. So the king asks, hey, what did we ever do for him? What did we ever do for this guy that saved my life? Why does he ask that? See, it was customary in the Persian Empire, if you saved the king's life, you were rewarded. The Persian kings were renowned for their swift and extravagant generosity for anyone who's done them service. History accounts that uh, once there was an assassination attempt that was put on King Ashuerus' brother. Uh, And when a man reported the assassination attempt and spared the king's brother's life, he was promoted to become a governor. So if you get to be a governor for saving the king's brother's life, should you not get something greater for saving the king's life, right? I mean, you would think for saving the king's life, there is this huge reward awaiting Mordecai. But nothing was done. Like, what a huge oversight. Like, how does this happen in a, in a huge kingdom like Persia? See, King Ashuerus now, he feels bad that Mordecai was never honored. He should have done something years ago. But think about Mordecai. Put yourselves in Mordecai's shoes. He knows the culture of being rewarded, yet he saves the king's life and nothing is done for him, not even a mention of his good deed. Right? This must have really bothered Mordecai. I know it would bother me. But even worse at the time, rather than being honored for his good deed, his enemy, the evil foe Haman, was promoted to second in command in the kingdom. That's like a a double slap in the face. And from there, Haman goes on to convince the king to kill all the Jews. I mean, think about Mordecai here. Mordecai is thinking, things are really bad. Like, each day, things are getting worse for me. Where are you, God? Are you going to help me and my people? Why are you silent? Why are you letting our enemies have power and favor over your people? This oversight of not rewarding Mordecai, it's really embarrassing for a great king. And so now King Ashuerus' attention has fully gone to what do we do for Mordecai? Now, is it coincidence that on the same night that Haman is building a structure to hang Mordecai on, the king who can't sleep reads about Mordecai saving his life and he realizes that he's never been honored? And now it looks like coincidence, right? I've heard it say that coincidence is the non-Christian's word for providence. That's not chance. It's not random. That's God's providence. That's God working in the life of Mordecai. 
Something that we can easily forget, church, is that God was always working in the life of Mordecai. Uh, Do you remember back in chapter 2 what happened? Even though Mordecai was not honored for his good deed. Do you remember what happened? It was recorded in the book of Chronicles, in the book of, uh, of memorable deeds. And that's really important. A coincidence that the king reads that particular book on th- about that specific chapter about Mordecai's good deed on that particular night? No, not coincidence. I've heard a preacher say that sometimes God works through the visible hand of miracles, like the parting of the Red Sea or the resurrecting a dead man from the grave. A miracle has no natural explanation. But sometimes, or we can say more likely, God works through the in his invisible hand of providence. What's providence? Providence is the way that God directs the flow of human history through the ordinary lives of individuals like you and me to fulfill his promises. I'm going to say that again. Providence is the way that God directs the flow of human history through the ordinary lives of individuals like you and me to fulfill his promises. We all believe the wind exists, right? It's real. Can we see the wind? No, we can't see the wind, but what can we see? We can see the effects of the wind. We see trees swaying. We see leaves blowing. That's like God's providence. We don't visibly see God working in our lives, but we see the effects of it. And we look back and we say, that was all God. Uh, Let me give you an example. Uh, Let's look at the story of Michael Riley. Uh, On March 14, 2008, Alabama was playing Mississippi State in a SEC basketball tournament game being held in the Georgia Dome in Atlanta. Uh, Michael Riley is a six-foot-six-inch senior forward for the University of Alabama. And in that game, Mississippi State was in the lead by three points, and there's two seconds left in the game. 15,000 people in the Georgia Dome are on their feet screaming. Alabama inbounds the ball to Michael Riley on the left wing. He's 24 feet from the basket. Michael rises up, he flicks his wrist, and it looks like the perfect shot. The ball sails through the air, and it hits the rim, and it bounces off the backboard, and it comes back onto the rim again. And you can imagine 15,000 hearts are now uh, are pounding, wondering what's going to happen. And then the ball falls in, and, and the game is tied, and the game goes into overtime. By the next morning, Michael Riley's three-pointer will be known as the shot that saved lives. The shot that saved lives. You might be wondering why. Well, 10 minutes after Michael Riley hit that game-tying three-pointer, a massive tornado, sounding like a freight train, came roaring past the Georgia Dome with winds of over 120 miles per hour. And 15,000 people who would have otherwise been outside directly in the path of this tornado Every one of them were safe inside. It was literally a shot that saved lives. Sports Illustrated, a year later, wrote an article on the event, and the title was The Shot That Saved Lives, and right under the article it read, but Michael Riley sank a three that kept fans out of the path of a tornado, but Riley would have never been there if not for an intricate chance of me- of ch- web of chance meetings, false starts, and a terrible crime. See, 14 years earlier, on December 27, 1994, a troubled young man with a 9mm pistol shot and killed three people, one of them being Michael's aunt. 
Michael was just nine years old, and everyone connected to Michael's family must have wondered, what is God doing through this terrible tragedy? After his aunt's death, Michael's grandmother built a full basketball court in her backyard with the life insurance money that she received. Her hope was to keep her grandchildren close and off the dangerous streets of Pine Bluff, Arkansas. And it was on that court that Michael learned to play the game of basketball, to perfect his jump shot. When asked about his aunt's death, Michael said, I don't question God's decisions. He said his shot against Mississippi State drew him closer to God and strengthened his faith. What was God doing that day when Michael's aunt was shot and killed? Pastor David Strain said this about the event. Well, we can't possibly know of all the ways that God works. But one of the things we can now say for sure, God was beginning to shape and mold the young man, directing his steps so that one day he might shoot a ball that would save many lives. When the bullet left the gunman's weapon, no one could have foreseen that. Such is the mystery of God's providence. Not chance or coincidence, but providence. Maybe right now you're wondering, where is God through a difficult time in your life? You're praying, you're patiently waiting, you're trusting, but God is nowhere to be found. Maybe we think that we see a resolution to the problem that we have only to find out that things are actually worse than we thought. You might feel like God has forgotten you or he doesn't care for your situation. You might be wondering why certain events have unfolded in your life. You're filled with worry and anxiety, uneasiness, and maybe even anger. Verses 1 to 3 should be a great reminder that God never forgets his children. Hebrews 13.5 says, he will never leave you or forsake you. Mordecai has to be thinking, where, where is God in all this? And Mordecai at this point, he doesn't know how bad things are. He has no clue how close he is to death. And then at the time that Mordecai needed God the most, God works. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, know that God has not forgotten you, that God is at work in your life. Romans 8.28 says this, God is working everything out for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Let me say that again. God is working everything out for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. God's providence is a reminder to us that he does indeed work all things according to the counsel of his own will. God is sovereign, church, and he is in control. God is good, and he is present in your life. Now let's move to the next question that the king asks, and we're going to see that in verses 4 to 9. The king asks Haman, what should be done for the man that the king delights to honor? So here we are, and it's early in the morning. Uh, uh, Haman has just stayed up all night uh, having this, this 75-foot wooden stake built to hang Mordecai on. And here he is, early in the morning, standing in the king's court. And he is licking his chops, ready to ask permission to kill Mordecai. And Haman is confident, and he has every reason to be confident. Remember, he asked the king before if he can kill all the Jews, and the king said, yeah, sure, right? So this, he believes, is going to be a piece of cake. You can see Haman's evil, giddy excitement. So right when he's about to ask the king, the king beats him to it and asks a question himself. What should be done to the man who the king delights to honor? Listen, this passage of scripture is really just pure comedy. It's really, it's, it's meant to make us laugh. 
The king's question takes Haman completely by surprise. Haman had come in focused on getting revenge on Mordecai. However, the king's question has taken his mind off of revenge and placed it on the only thing he likes talking more about revenge, himself. Okay, now it's the first time in the book of Esther that we are told what someone is thinking. Haman actually talks to himself. Who else would the king uh, uh, delight to honor but this guy, right? Like, what is not to love about me? Finally, the king sees my greatness, right? Uh, We get to see the heart of Haman come out. We get to see the heart of man. This is the moment that Haman has been dreaming about all his life. Haman goes right into what he wants, and he holds nothing back. Let's take a look at what Haman wants. He wants the king's robe. He wants the king's horse. He wants the king's crown. He wants to be dressed and pampered like the king from a noble official. He wants to be paraded around the city where all the people are told of his greatness and that the king delights in him. Haman is caught in this dream world, right? He can picture in his mind that the city square is packed with people shouting his name, Haman, Haman. He dreams that people are throwing flowers, women are blowing kisses, that kids are are clamoring to just touch his robe, right? He's in full dream mode. I mean, this guy truly loves himself. He's the guy that talks in third person. Okay? See, Haman is an easy guy to dislike. We all hear this, and what do we think? We think, man, he's arrogant, he's selfish, he's prideful, right? We laugh at him. We make jokes about him. We laugh at him since we already know who King Ashuerus delights to honor. Uh, If you think about this, what would be the obvious response to a question like that from the king? I think almost all of us would say, well, king, who do you delight to honor, right? Who do you want to honor? But Haman is so self-centered, that couldn't possibly be a question that he was going to ask. Church, thank God we don't know people like Haman, right? Uh, People that are more concerned and consumed about themselves than others, right? People that are never satisfied, always looking for more. Church, thank God we're not like Haman, right? Sense the sarcasm there? Listen, if we're honest, and this is my second point, our desires are a lot like Haman, be careful of our pride. Our desires are a lot like Haman, be careful of our pride. Now, I know some of you are thinking, what you talking about, Willis? And if you didn't get that, that was 80s sitcom humor there, okay? Now, I know this sounds harsh, and I'm not saying that we're thinking of genocide or killing or revenge. No, that's not what I'm talking about. Hear me out. What I am saying is we have many of the same desires Haman has. Listen, Haman at this point in his life, he is one of the elites. He's rich. He's second in command in the empire. He's got 10 sons. People would literally give up their arm and their leg to be him. But for Haman... He's not satisfied. He wants more. In chapter 5, do you remember what Haman said? Haman says all he has is worth nothing to him because Mordecai won't honor him. Uh, Haman's got a fragile ego. Uh, What does he want? He wants to be king or at least as close as he possibly can get. He wants more glory. It's never enough. He wants to be loved and honored by the king. Uh, Haman has some real identity issues. I don't know about you, but I find myself many times pursuing earthly glory like Haman. 
I'm looking for joy and happiness and satisfaction in all the wrong places. I, I want a, a bigger house, a, a better promotion. I want more friends. I, I want a more elevated status. I want more followers and likes on social media. I want everyone to recognize who I am and my talents and my gifts. And on and on and on I can go. None of these things are inherently bad or wrong, but when we look to them for ultimate satisfaction, they always leave us empty. Uh, the grass always seems greener on the other side, doesn't it? If we just have this or get to this place, all will be good. But unfortunately, like Haman, everything leaves us empty and chasing more. Uh, Philip Holmes said this, the problem is our hearts are like black holes of discontentment, de devouring relationships and possessions, all while screaming, I want more. We're always eating but hungry, always drinking but never satisfied. <clears throat> See, the world is in the same rat race. It's all about us, us. This isn't new. From the beginning of time, pride has been the downfall of man. It started with Lucifer in heaven and our enemy, our enemy wants nothing more than to see us be prideful and chase after vain glory because he knows it will bring us to our ultimate demise. Is there hope for someone like Haman? As someone who's chasing after everything that the world has to offer but ends up empty and dissatisfied. Someone chasing glory but can never attain it. Someone who makes an idol of himself. Is there, is there hope? Yes, there is hope, and hope is found in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Only Jesus can satisfy our longing heart. Everything Haman wants can only be found in Jesus. Listen, if you are here today and the things of this world have left you empty, your pursuit of happiness and glory have left you unsatisfied, Jesus is calling you to come to him today. The Bible is full of glorious promises of satisfaction for the discontent. Listen to what the Bible says. Jesus said to them, I, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. John 6, 35. For he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Psalm 107.9, the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. Psalm 22.26, look to Jesus. In him is where we only find true satisfaction. Finally, church, let's look at the last statement from the king, which is a command. And we find this in verses 10 and 11. And this is, this is a, a great passage of scripture here. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. Our last and final point is this. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. See, God is really funny. Seriously, he is funny. This is one of the most ironic chapters of the whole Bible. What a great reversal of fortunes, right? This is unbelievable. This whole time, Haman is like, this is the best day of my life. I'm going to kill a guy that I don't like. And then the, the, the king is going to honor me and give me a parade. And then it all comes crashing down, right? The king wakes Haman from his dream. Haman's jaw drops, his heart sinks, his head bows as he's completely humbled. 
Did the king just say, do so to Mordecai the Jew, the guy that I, I hate with, with all of the fiber in my, in my being? Like I have to parade this guy around? What a reversal of fortunes. Mordecai goes from mourning in sackcloth and ashes, hours away from being hanged, to being honored by the king with this huge ticker tape parade. Now, we've broken down before the history of hate and enmity between Haman the Agagite's family and Mordecai the son of Kish's family. There is bad blood here, right? This is a rivalry. For Haman to parade Mordecai around the city on a horse shouting, this is the man whom the king delights to honor. Do you know what that's like, church? That would be like if the eagles had to parade around the cowboys in Center City, shouting, hail to the cowboys. They are a better team. They've won five Super Bowls, and we've only won one. Doesn't that sting, Seven Mile Road? Doesn't that just make you want to throw up? Like, can there be anything worse for an Eagles fan than having to do that? That's what it was like for Haman. God resists the proud, but faithful, humble Mordecai was given much grace on that day. What a great unexpected turn of events. Could anyone have seen or predicted that reversal? Pastor Tim Kaine, he made this great observation on Esther chapter 6, and I quote, You and I thought that the only thing that can save Mordecai was a miracle. What we didn't understand was that God is so powerful that he's able to save Mordecai without resorting to the supernatural. God is the hero of the book of Esther, even though he does all his work behind the scenes. God is the one who has been orchestrating these events from the very beginning without doing any violence to human responsibility. Each character in this book does what they want to do, and yet God orchestrates it all in order to fulfill his promises. I'm going to read that last sentence again. Each character in this book does what they want to do, and yet God orchestrates it all in order to fulfill his promises. Listen, this is a a great story of reversal. And we cheer and we're excited for Mordecai. He went from certain death to life and honor. But church, the Bible tells us of a greater reversal story, the greatest reversal story, Jesus Christ dying for sinners like us. See, Jesus is the complete opposite of Haman. He's the complete opposite of King Asuerus. Jesus is a better servant, and he's a better king. Haman wanted a glory that he could never achieve, but Jesus gave up his glory to become a servant and to die for the pride and the sins of someone like Haman, for people like you and me. King Asuerus sacrificed very little to honor Mordecai. Right? He honored him with perishable things. But our King Jesus, he gave it all. He sacrificed his very own life to save us and to provide us eternal life. Uh, Let me read this to you from Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. Philippians 2, 5 to 11. And it says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count it equality uh, to, uh, with God a thing to be grasped. But he 
emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Bible tells us that we are all sinners and that the wages of our sin is death. We, like Mordecai, will be facing judgment, certain death. But, but by the grace of God, he sent his son Jesus to reverse places with us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we, in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus took our place. He paid the punishment for our sin so that we might be saved, that we might be made righteous before God. See, Mordecai, he deserved to be honored and praised. He saved the king's life, right? Mordecai did something worthy of honor. But what did we do? We did nothing to deserve the grace and love of Jesus Christ. Yet our king was willing to die for us. Our king saved us. He redeems us and he loves us. The question today is, do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? You can do that today and I urge you to make a decision to follow him. Here's how you can know Jesus. I'm reading from Romans 10, 9 to 10. Romans 10, 9 to 10. It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. If you do know Jesus, church, let us be reminded and encouraged by these 13 verses in Esther chapter 6. If God has provided for our greatest need of salvation through Jesus, trust, trust that God will not leave us or forsake us during the trials and difficulties of this life. Fight to believe, church. Fight to believe that even though in this life we cannot see God and we can't hear his voice and we can't touch his hand, the invisible hands of God's providence is always working in your life. Listen to this story told by Pastor Chuck Swindle. There's a story of a sailor sailing alone across the Pacific. A fierce storm capsized the man's boat. He found himself shipwrecked alone on an uninhabited island. He painstakingly built a, a little hut for protection from the elements. For weeks, he lived with only the hot sun and the cold nights and the tropical storms for company. He, prayerfully, he scanned the horizon daily for the approach of a ship to rescue him, but nothing. He was hoping someone was searching for him, but days turned to weeks and hope is starting to fade. And then one evening, when he returned from a, a search for food, he was terrified to find that this little hut was in flames. As he stood there, unable to put out the fire, he was crushed by the disaster. What few possessions he had were now gone up in smoke. 
His situation had turned from bad to worse. He went to sleep that night, right, near the ashes, listening to the surf pounding the sand and despair throbbing in his heart. Early the next morning, he awoke to find a ship anchored off the island, the first ship he had seen in all the weeks he had been searching for the hope of rescue. Still trying to believe his eyes, he heard footsteps and then heard the captain's voice. We saw your smoke signal, and we came to rescue you. Church, when we're going through sufferings and trials and grief, we cannot see what God is doing in our life. In the time of suffering and trial, things are just hard. They're difficult. They're painful. Only later can we look back and see how the invisible hands of God's providence took difficult circumstances and used them for his glory and for our good. The the passage ends in verses 12 and 13, and Haman is distraught, he's humbled, and he goes back home where his wife and his friends warn him of his reality. And Mordecai, he goes back to the gate. He goes back to work. See, Mordecai is in the middle of this trial still. He's in the middle of this suffering. He has no idea if Esther will be successful in begging for the mercy of the Jews. The Jews are still under this edict of annihilation. But I believe that he goes with his faith strengthened and his life anchored on the promises of God. Church, there is a difference between knowing about God's promises and faithfully believing in God's promises. Church, let's hold fast to the promises of our great God and let us live faithfully in those promises. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for providing our greatest need of salvation through your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the promise that you will never leave us or forsake us through the difficulties of this life. Lord, even this week, Lord, our country and many cities in our country are facing great difficulties and suffering. Lord, we pray that you would be with them and draw near to them. Thank you, Lord, that we can trust in your promises, that you are working all things out for the good of those who love you. Help us to faithfully believe and live in these promises. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Brothers and sisters, among the many things that I think God spoke to us this morning, remember again what Justin said, that the Lord God is powerful enough to meet us in supernatural ways, but also powerful enough to meet us in very ordinary ways, ordinary ways that we wouldn't even know are special. Nothing can be more ordinary than bread and a cup. And through this ordinary meal, God intends to meet us in unbelievably glorious ways. So if you know Jesus Christ as Lord, if you've trusted in him, if you've identified with him in baptism, you're a part of his body, the church, then come to this very ordinary table that Jesus left for his followers. Come to something as ordinary as a crumb of bread or a cup of wine or juice. And as you drink from that, And eat from that. Remember the extraordinary things that God did for you. And meet Jesus at this table where he reversed your fate from death to life, from hell to heaven. And these are the good things that Jesus Christ has done for you. Remember that with great faith. If you're here and you don't know Jesus as Lord, then the invitation to you is not to come to this table. For the Bible warns that to eat this meal in an unworthy way, whereas these things aren't real in your life, 
would be judgment rather than blessing. And so in love for you, the Bible cautions you to say, don't play religion or church right now because God's not impressed with an external show. Instead, the most godly thing you could do is internally go from unbelief to faith in Jesus Christ. Go from walking without him to walking with him. And you can do that right from your seat. No one will look at you odd or funny for not coming to this meal. I'll give you a moment to receive this invitation in this ordinary Sunday, in this ordinary moment, to meet with our God as we prepare to come to his table. Let's take a moment in silence and in prayer. Let's stand together. As we prepare for communion, I'll lead us in a responsive reading. You can read in unison the parts that say all as we prepare for the Lord's table. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the Lord has prepared this table for all who love him, who are sorry for their sins and trust in him alone for salvation. So come, those who have much faith and those who would like to have more those who have been to this table often and those who have not been for a long time, those who have tried to follow Jesus and those who have failed, it is Jesus Christ who invites us to meet him here. We come not because we are righteous, but because we are repented, not because we are strong, but because we are weak, not because we are whole, but because we are broken. At this meal, God declares that our sins have been completely forgiven through the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus, by faith, we come now to your table. In death, O oh Lord, we commemorate. Your resurrection, we celebrate. And your second coming, we await. Amen. Come, take the bread and the cup, bring it back to your seats, and then once everyone has these elements, we'll eat from the Lord's table together. Come before the Lord. He is one of 
freedom Jesus has won it all have won the victory hallelujah you have won it all for me death could not hold you down you are the risen king Seated in majesty, you are the risen King. Our God is risen, He is alive, He won the victory, He reigns on high. Our God is risen is alive he won the victory he reigns on high our god is risen he is alive he won the victory he reigns on high our god is risen he is alive he won the hold you down you are the risen king seated in majesty you are the risen king death could not hold death could not hold you down you are the risen King, seated in majesty. You are the risen King. Hear what the Lord Jesus, our risen King, said before this meal. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The body of Christ broken for you. Eat this, remembering Jesus. In the same way, he also took the cup after the supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. 
Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The blood of Christ shed for the forgiveness of your every sin. Drink this receiving grace from Jesus Christ. Our great God, by faith we believe that on this ordinary day, in this ordinary place, among very ordinary people, and even at this ordinary meal, you have met us. And renew our faith in you to believe again and afresh that Jesus Christ gave his body and his blood to exchange fates with us so that we might be forever welcomed before you. Spared and saved, we give you thanks and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. against me but I will hold my ground I will not fear the war I will not fear the storm my help is on the way my help is on the way strength always I will not fear his promise is true my God will come through always always abounding my soul will rest in you I will not fear the war I will not fear the storm my help is on the way my help is on the way strong the Lord mm -hmm. 
my eyes up My help comes from the Lord Sing, Oh my God My God will come through always. I will not fear. I will not fear. His promise is true. My God will come through always. Always. is our blessing and benediction as we go from here. The Lord bless you and may he keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Let's sing our doxology together. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Go on mission. Go in peace. Have a great week.